decree went out. Irenaeus was governor of Syria from the town of the... And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And at the end of the eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. You may be seated. Let's, let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Um, Father, uh, this time of year we are celebrating the greatest imaginable miracle that you would become human. And so, Father, as, as we um, enter into this, Lord, we've, we've been singing songs about this. We've been hearing from your word I pray that our hearts once more would be um, filled with wonder, Lord. Uh, help us this morning to, to hear from your word and to um, really grow in our appreciation of what Christ has done for us. Lord, I, I pray f- specifically this morning for those um, who are maybe having a hard time around the holidays, Often it can be a difficult time, uh, whether it's because of a loss in the family or because of uh, some of the tensions that exist in our families. Um, Lord, I pray that you would provide comfort for those who are hurting. Lord, I pray that we as a church would provide comfort for those who are hurting. Uh, may we be a source of encouragement. Lord, the the Bible tells us to um, weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. And so, Lord, we do. um, Our heart goes out, and we pray that our our actions would go out as well to to be a comfort to those who are are mourning. And, Lord, we rejoice with those who rejoice, and many of us are, are excited for Christmas. And, Lord, I pray that our 
deepest, fullest joy would be found in Christ our Savior. Um, Lord, we're grateful for family, and we're grateful for um, all the ways that we get to celebrate and all the fun that we have, but Lord, may our, may our greatest joy be found in Christ. Um, Lord, we thank you for this morning. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I thought I would start this morning with some fun statistics about Christmas. Um, just, just for fun. The average adult in America spends about $900 per year on Christmas. If you're married, double that. Um, the majority of that is for Christmas gifts, which last year totaled nearly $180 billion. That's with a B. <laughs> That's a lot of money. $180 billion. Um, approximately 35 million live Christmas trees are sold each year. Uh, Three billion Christmas cards are sent. And it all starts on September 1st when Costco brings out their artificial Christmas trees. <laughs> that's, that's the official start of the season. Um, one, la- one last fun stat is that for all the money that we Americans spend for Christmas, the average Canadian spends twice as much. Yeah, they lead the world. You know, it's wintry up there. They probably have snow. I don't know. Um, you know, in the midst of all of that stuff, it's really hard to remember that Jesus is the reason for the season, right? It's really hard to, to keep that focus. Uh, Kim and I watched a Charlie Brown Christmas um, just a few days ago. She had never seen it. I know, crazy. She, she lived under a rock for... Yeah, it's okay. Um, now, that, that little movie was made back in 1965, and way back then, Charles Schultz was lamenting the consumerism around Christmas. Why can't anybody tell me what Christmas is all about, you know? Imagine if he could see it today. You know, it's, it's certainly more. Uh, we have lights and glitter and Black Friday shopping and traffic at the mall and the work Christmas party and travel to visit family and more shopping and wrapping presents and about a thousand movies about, Christmas, or about Santa Claus, you know. And somewhere in the midst of all of that stuff, probably in your house, you have one too, you have a little nativity set. Right, little little nativity set. Maybe it's under the tree or up on a shelf or somewhere. Um, but you've got this little nativity set, and it shows this baby laying there in a feeding trough. That's what a manger is. Manger is from a French word. Mange or mange means to eat. It's just the eating place, right? So the the manger is the feeding trough. And you've you've got this baby in a feeding trough, which is really strange and seems out of place in the midst of all the gifts and glitter and lights and all this stuff. It's such a sharp contrast, you know, against against the backdrop of material wealth. We have this baby in a very humble situation. And Christmas is about him, right? That's the message. Christmas is about him. And we're supposed to um, remember that Christmas is really about God's gift to us of his son, Jesus. Um, And Jesus' value far exceeds the $180 billion of gifts that that get passed around. Um, so, So this morning, my goal for us is just simply to remind us of the truth of what Christmas is all about. Uh, My family has a tradition. um, 
every Christmas morning, we read the Christmas story, and it's almost always straight out of Luke 2. You know, you can go over to Matthew, but man, we really like this one. And so we almost always, Christmas morning, pull out the Bible, read through, remind ourselves what it's about, and then enjoy opening gifts to each other and and all of that. Um, Christmas is a reminder, and this passage in particular is a reminder of both the humility and the glory of our great King. And so I, I just I hope and pray that the Lord would open our eyes to just really appreciate this this morning. Now we're going to start the first part of this talks about the humility of our King. And it's seen most clearly by contrast. So, so Luke starts this way. Verse 1 here, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Now, the name Caesar Augustus might mean something to you. I don't know how much that means to you. Back then, that meant a lot to them. This was, this was the most powerful man in the world. Everybody knew him. Whether you liked him or, or not, everybody knew him. He was bigger than Taylor Swift. Okay? Everybody knew Caesar Augustus. Most powerful man in the world. So what I want to do is I want to give you a little perspective on who he was. And we're going to compare him to who Jesus is. So Caesar Augustus, um, was, he was born under the name Octavian. He was born in 63 B.C., the son of Julius Caesar's nephew. And Julius Caesar was assassinated in 44 B.C., and, and after that there was a time of political intrigue. And eventually Octavian defeated Antony and Cleopatra in 31 B.C. and became the ruler of the Roman Empire. And the Roman Senate gave him the title Augustus, which meant majestic or revered. He is the, the, the august one, the, the revered one. So Augustus goes on to build the Roman Forum and, and libraries and all these lavish spectacles for the people. And he boasted that he found Rome in brick and left it in marble. He just did all this amazing stuff. He was a pretty amazing guy, but um, Augustus was the first emperor to encourage a cult to worship him. And so um, there are all kinds of legends springs up around this, this man. Um, Augustus, it's said, was miraculously conceived by a serpent. Um, there, there's an inscription, which is kind of creepy, right? Um, there's an inscription that's dated back to 9 B.C., um, that hails Augustus as a god whose, whose, quote, birthday signaled the beginning of good news for the world. Does that sound familiar? His, his birthday signals good news for the world. The, the Greek word there is euangelion, which is the exact word that we use for gospel. His birthday is the gospel, the good proclamation of, of good news for the world. Um, there's another inscription that's now in, the British, in a British museum that says this about him. It says, Augustus is the father of his divine homeland, Rome, inherited from his father, Zeus, and a savior of the common folk. His foresight not only fulfilled the entreaties of all people, but surpassed them, making peace for land and sea, while cities bloom with order, harmony, and good seasons. The productivity of all things is good, and at its prime, there are fond hopes for the future and goodwill 
during the present, which fills all men, so that they ought to bear pleasing sacrifices and hymns. So do you hear what's being said about this this man? He's identified as God, as Son of God, Savior. They associate him with peace and hope and good news. And it's not a coincidence that all those same titles are then applied to Jesus. Okay, Um, Caesar Augustus was a counterfeit Savior and God. And Jesus is the real thing. And so, um, you know, as I, as I was reading about Caesar Augustus and learning a little bit about him, I couldn't help but think of um, the Wizard of Oz. Do you guys remember the Wizard of Oz? There's that scene in there where Dorothy and her friends show up to meet Oz, and there's like this big screen kind of special effects thing going on. And it says, I am the great and terrible Oz. Ignore that man behind the curtain, you know, <laughs> like, it's all a show, it's just fake, it's not real, and I can't help but think of that with, with Caesar Augustus. He needs all the marble and the, the stuff and the wealth to make him look good and prop him up. Um, notice the contrast with Jesus. Jesus doesn't need any of that stuff. Um, Jesus is nothing like Augustus. So, consider the birth of Jesus. We, we go on in the story. Um, And, and, you know, Caesar sends out this decree that all the world should be registered. Verse 2, this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Um, Luke provides very detailed historical data. Um, And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. So you have Caesar Augustus sitting on a throne in Rome, surrounded by material wealth, and you have Mary, who's nine months pregnant, having to make her way through the countryside to get to Bethlehem to have her baby. And she's doing this, why? Well, because a decree went forth from from the mighty emperor, that this is what she has to do. And Caesar doesn't care about inconveniencing some people. Um, he's just saying this is, this is how it has to be. What's interesting is you can view it from two perspectives. Caesar is mighty. He's accomplishing this. But at the same time, Caesar is just a puppet in God's hands. God had made a predetermined plan that the Savior would be born in Bethlehem. He announced it 700 years earlier. So in Micah... 5.2, we read this. It's a prophecy through the prophet Micah. He says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, are, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. So God uses... Caesar Augustus, to orchestrate all the events, to make sure Mary gets to Bethlehem to have this child. And she gives birth, lays, um, lays Jesus in a, in a manger, in a feeding trough, which just seems like the most crazy paradox, doesn't it? That the Son of God, the mighty, almighty God who has existed from eternity past, is now in this dirty kind of you know, possibly disgraceful situation, right? This, this 
incredibly humble situation. And so as I was studying this this past week, one of the questions that arose for me, maybe it arises for you, is why did God choose to be born into this situation? Why did he choose it this way? He could have arranged it any way he wanted to. He announced it 700 years in advance. God plans ahead, right? So he could have done this any way he wanted to. Um, Why such a humble birth? Um, I, I think a couple things come to mind. First, it's safe to say that anywhere on earth would be a humble place for Jesus to be born, uh, for the Son of God to enter into humanity. Like, we tend to think, oh, if he was in one of our modern hospitals, that would be so much better. But that would be incredibly humble for the almighty creator of the universe, even in a, even in a nice hospital. Um, but more importantly than that, what we find out in the Scriptures is that he did this for our sake. This was very intentional. He, he, he did this to show that he was willing to come down to our level, even the lowest of the low, right? No matter, no matter how low you think your situation is, he was willing to come down that low. So Philippians 2, and this is a, a passage that's probably familiar for many. Um, it says, let each of you, this is advice Paul's giving to the church. Let each of you look out not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Consider other people's needs. And then he gives an example. He says, it should be like what Jesus did. Have this mind among yourselves, which, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, to be clung onto. But he emptied himself. He gave up his glory by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being, being found in human form, he humbled himself even further by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So why did God have such a humble beginning? He did it for our sake. He was considering our needs above his own. So unlike Caesar Augustus, who needs material wealth to prop him up, make him look good, Ignore that man behind the curtain. The mighty Caesar Augustus. Jesus actually comes humbly, seeking our, our good above his own. Um, so we, we see these humble beginnings, but as we go on, we also see the glory of our king. This is no ordinary birth. This is God's radical intervention into our world. So let's, let's read on verse 8 here. It says, in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. Um, again, very humble situation. These are shepherds out in the field. These are not the, not the famous and the mighty and the popular. These are, these are just shepherds. They're common folk, sometimes sort of looked down upon. Um, it's also worth pointing out that, you know, these angels show up to these shepherds out in the wilderness. And 2,000 years ago, there wasn't too much light pollution. <laughs> it would have been very dark out there. And then suddenly there's this great light shining around them, the glory of, of heaven shining around them. And it says that they were filled with great fear. Literally, it's, it, in the Greek it says, fe- they feared with great fear. 
It's this redundant thing. Like, they're super, super afraid, you know. Um, and you can imagine how terrifying that would be. No, no, like, warning, just all of a sudden, whoa, what's going on here? Um, the message of the angel that comes to them is both wonderful and strange. So, so listen to what the message is. The angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. So good news, great joy. It's for all the people. This is a message to, to go out to everyone. It's the arrival of a king. And he's born in the city of David. He's Savior. He's this promised Messiah, the one that they've been waiting for. Many of the same titles that were applied to Caesar Augustus, right? But this is the true king. Um, the difference is that Jesus is not an empty hope. He's actually going to fulfill the hopes and longings of the people. Um, but the, the message is also strange, right? It's this good message, it's a great message, but it's also strange. The shepherds are told that the baby is going to be in a feeding trough. The Messiah has come. He's in a feeding trough. <laughs> what? <laughs> that doesn't make any sense at all. And so... At that point, then, this, this multitude appears, and suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. The heavenly host. What does heavenly host mean? Anybody ever wondered that? Um, <laughs> she's getting, well, I'll explain. I'll explain. So the, the heavenly host um, is, is kind of an old, archaic use of that word host. We, it's not like the server at the restaurant. Like this is, um, this is a great multitude or an army. What this is really referring to is the armies of heaven appearing before them, an angelic army. And so I, I like the way the New Living Translation says it. Suddenly the angel was joined with a vast host of others, the armies of heaven praising God. And it's fascinating what the armies say. They say, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace. Now, it's fascinating. So, so God receives glory in heaven. In the highest probably doesn't mean the, the most of. It means God is getting glory in the highest place. Contrast between heaven and earth. In heaven, it's glory. On earth, he's coming to bring peace. And, and so you have an army declaring peace, which is, which is kind of ironic. Um, but God extends peace on earth, it says, among those with whom he is pleased. And that's a subtle but important reminder. God's arrival on earth is not good, good news for everyone. Okay, just as, you know, when, when the, the Roman peace, the Pax Romana, you know, the, the emperor declares there's peace throughout the land as long as you're on the right side of things. <laughs> there's incredible peace. Just don't mess, don't mess with the Roman emperor and, and his people. Um, there is peace with God to those who choose to align with him. And so through Christ, we have this amazing opportunity to be at peace with God. And it's really our first glimpse of this idea of the gospel of peace. And it's a revolutionary message. 
Augustus is not the true king. Jesus is the true king. And it's peace that is found in him. And so you have the shepherds that they kind of go out from here as the first evangelists. So, so let's read on. So verse 15, uh, the angels went away from them into heaven. The shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem. <laughs> this, is, this is good advice. Let's go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard, all that they had seen as it had been told them. Really, they're the first evangelists. They're the first ones to go out and carry this message that they've just heard about this newborn king. And you can imagine like the, the elements of what they would have been sharing. We were out there. It was really dark. And these angels appeared to us, and it was terrifying. And, um, and he was more scared than me. But it was terrifying. And then we came into town. They, they said that we were going to find a baby uh, somewhere around here that was wrapped up and lying in a feeding trough, sleeping there, I guess. And uh, this child, this child is the Messiah who is Christ the Lord. And he's going to bring peace on earth. And everybody's just amazed. Like, oh, well, did it actually happen? Did you find? Yeah, we saw the baby. The baby was there, just like the angels said. And so the response from everyone, you know, verse 18 says that many people wondered at this. And that's a word that shows up all through the New Testament, especially in the Gospels. And it's, it's this word of being amazed or marveling at something. So often when Jesus does a miracle, the people were amazed or they marveled. They wondered at this thing. And so that's the response here is these people are, are wondering, like, what is this? This is amazing. This is the kind of response, like, I, I can't help but tell somebody about this. This is crazy. I saw this thing. I've got to tell you. That's, that's the response from the people. Meanwhile, Mary pondered and treasured these things in her heart. Um, I, I just always, it's interesting that Luke points that out. Um, he probably received this, this account directly from Mary. She told him that she treasured these things in her heart. And for her, this was an amazing night. I I think it's probably safe to say for any mom, it's an amazing night when they give birth to a baby. Um, Her firstborn son in a crazy situation. But this this was no ordinary baby. She had already been told by the angel Gabriel that this, this is going to happen. And it was a miracle that it happened at all. And then this, this message, the angelic host bringing this message on the night of the birth, this would have been just staggering for her. And so she pondered, she wondered. Meanwhile, the shepherds went back and they carried with them this message, glorifying and praising God for all that they'd heard and seen. Nobody had to tell them to do this. So the natural response, you see something amazing, they go back, they're just, they're just amazed at this, and they're glorifying God. Jesus came in a totally unexpected way. Uh, just in, in amazing humility and in glory. And unlike the kings of the world, he wasn't trying to impress anyone. 
And unlike the kings of the world, he was the only one who truly was the Savior, God, who could bring peace on earth. Uh, This whole story is fascinating because it's just full of contrast, right? So you have heaven and earth, you have glory, you have humility, you have the mighty army of angels showing up to some shepherds out in the field, you have Caesar Augustus, and you have Jesus. And in all of that, there's this clash between rival kingdoms. Will Caesar Augustus reign supreme, or will Jesus reign supreme? Now, most of us know the rest of this story. I want to jump ahead in time for you, and I want to read a verse from Revelation. Um, Revelation chapter 11, verse 15. This is a, this is a um, verse that you, you've heard these words before. Uh, this is in the Hallelujah Chorus. And so um, the the verse, the the seventh angel blew his trumpet. There were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. The end of the story is there's no longer two rival kingdoms. There's one kingdom, and it belongs to Christ, and he will reign forever and ever, which is good news. And it's such a great reminder for us. Jesus is not just a baby in a manger. Jesus is the king of kings. The significance of the, the birth of this baby was the arrival of the king. Um, Philippians chapter 2 says these words, Therefore God has highly exalted him, Christ, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Christmas is such a wonderful time, (laughs) Uh, but it's such an important time for us to remind ourselves. Christmas is about the the birth of the humble king, whose glory is greater than any earthly king. Jesus, who came as Savior and Messiah and Lord. Um, I want to read for you, um, you know, we we get this opportunity this time of year to to sing Christmas carols, we do that here in church. Um, you walk through department stores, sometimes you hear Christmas carols, and it's like, is anybody listening to what these words are saying? This is amazing. Um, I want to read the last two verses of O Little Town of Bethlehem. It says, How silently, how silently, the wondrous gift is given. So God imparts to human hearts the blessings of his heaven. No ear may hear his coming, but in this world of sin, where meek souls will receive him still, the dear Christ enters in. O holy child of Bethlehem, descend to us, we pray. Cast out our sin and enter in, be born in us today. We hear the Christmas angels, the great glad tidings tell, O come to us, abide with us, our Lord, Emmanuel. Let's pray to the Lord. Um, Lord Jesus, we do pray that you would abide in each one of us. Father, that every last one of us would know the goodness of your salvation. Lord, we recognize that you are worthy of all glory and honor and praise. And we thank you that even though you are worthy of all glory, and honor and praise. Father, you chose to come 
in Jesus in humility, reaching out to ordinary people like us, loving us enough to save us from our sins, to save us from ourselves. Lord, you've extended such great love to us. I think of John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, so that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Father, that is such good news. That is the message of Christmas, and we are um, reminded once more, Lord, of our true reason for celebrating this time of year. Father, we love you, and we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. I'd like to invite Charles to come on up. Adam, thank you for the message. Um, peace, that really stood out to me. That's, that's what we really want, right? Isn't that what we crave? Glory to God in the highest. And oftentimes when we hear that verse, it's cut off at just peace on earth. But Adam made the subtle little caveat clear that it is among men with whom God is pleased. I think about peace. Do we not want peace on earth? We look and we see war. We hear about war. Don't we want peace in our relationships? I don't know about you guys. I crave peace. It's one of the reasons I love being out there on my own for 30 minutes. It's one of the few peaceful moments I have in every week. If you know my life, it's filled with a lot of chaos, but I'm kind of twisted and wouldn't want it any other way. But at the same time, I crave peace. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is from Proverbs chapter 16, verse 7. It says, when a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Why I love that verse so much is if even you are at peace with your enemies, everything else is probably pretty good at that point, right? But ultimately, we need peace with God. And another one of my favorite, favorite verses in the Bible tells us exactly how we can have peace with God. It's Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Justified by faith, it's just literally God declaring us right because of our belief in Him. Theologians call it the great exchange. We place our faith in Christ. The righteousness of Christ is placed upon us. We're about ready to celebrate communion, which is remembering what Christ has done for us. Remembering that we have peace with Christ. If you do not have peace with Christ, this isn't for you. You need that peace first. You need to be right with Christ first. If today is the day of salvation for you, talk to Pastor Adam. Talk to Pastor Dan. Talk to Pastor Brian. Get that right. That's more important than the tree, the presents, the Christmas spirit. Okay? That falls flat. All of that gets old when people die, when people get sick, when there's war and all this. Ultimately, our greatest need is peace with God. And so let's take a moment and um, really just consider our ways before the Lord. Consider our, our steps. Consider our mind, consider our heart, and let's consider what Christ has done for us.
Father God, I thank you for this plan that you made from eternity past to send your Son, our, truly our greatest need, Father, to die on our behalf, Father, that we might be made right with you, that we can have peace with you, Father. And thank you so much for making that possible, Father. And thank you for the, this congregation of believers that that we call Grace Church here in Pasco, Father. And just pray that as we approach your table, Father, and um, take communion together, remembering what you've done for us, Father, that you would settle things in our hearts, Father. And just pray for those who need to settle that for the first time, Father, that this would be the day for salvation, Father. Thank you so much. In Jesus' name, amen. When you guys are ready, you guys can come from the outsides and gather the elements and return down the middle to your seats and we will partake together.